friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport. We are super excited to share this episode with Jennifer Say, a seven-time member of the United States National Gymnastics Team and 1986 National Champion with you today. She is um, the producer of the notorious and now infamous um, Netflix documentary, Athlete A. And I can tell you, we have an amazing conversation coming to you um, about all of the harms associated with gymnastics, gymnastics culture, from her perspective as a former gymnast and now as someone who works within the field and is a producer of w one of the kind of um, preeminent documentaries of our contemporary moment during this quarantine, Athlete Day. So we are ex extremely excited to be um, given this opportunity to chat with Jennifer um, and chat about um, gymnastics culture. And actually, it, it lends itself very well to our gymnastics week last week. So if you haven't had a chance, please check out all of those. There were four episodes posted in the same week. But if you haven't tuned in, there are four episodes um, all covering the um, harms associated with gymnastics and gymnastics culture. So I'm not going to give much more than that um, other than I think Johanna is going to talk a little bit about our uh, all of the promo stuff that we have going on. How are you doing today, Johanna? Good. How are you doing? Very well. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of like the promo person now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, so yeah, so like always, um, if you have not written us a text review, please do that because our our text reviews are still I think we're in like the very low single digits. But yeah, we get all this really great feedback from people on Twitter, people on Instagram. I've had like friends reach out to me. You know, we get really good emails. Um, so if you're kind of willing to like reach out and, and share our material, please go in and rate us. That would be wonderful. Um, you can, our, our handle is at end of sport pod on Instagram and Twitter. And our email address is the end of sport at gmail.com. We also have a new website, which is the end of sport.com. And you can go onto our website, which is where all of our episodes are listed there. But you, there's also a support us part of the website where you can go on and become a Patreon supporter so that we can kind of boost our efforts to um, improve the quality, get better equipment, pay for transcription so that everybody can have access to materials, um, those sorts of things. So definitely get in touch with us. Let us know how you're liking the episode. And we really cannot wait for you to listen to it. Jennifer Say was a seven-time member of the U.S. National Gymnastics Team and the 1986 National Champion. She is also the author of the 2008 book, Chalked Up, Inside Elite Gymnastics, Merciless Coaching, Overzealous Parents, Eating Disorders, and Elusive Olympic Dreams, as well as producer of the very recent Netflix documentary, Athlete A. She has more overworked at Levi's for over 20 years and is currently their senior vice president and chief marketing officer, which is very impressive. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So first, as we like to ask everybody, how are you doing with the pandemic and societal upheavals in San Francisco, California? You know, we're doing okay. I think in San Francisco, we were the first city to shut down. So mm -hmm. we've been here since 
I don't know, maybe the first or second week of March. Um, I am sheltering with four kids at home, ranging in ages from three to 19. I think you can hear them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Life in uh, the pandemic. Yeah, it's so, you know, it's a lot and all of them have their own sort of needs. I might need to pause again and ask them to be quiet. Um, no so yeah, it's a lot, but working hard and really pleased with, you know, the impact the film is having. And, you know, that's all happened since we've been in, you know, sheltering. Um, so, I, you know, to say that's a bright spot is probably misspeaking because it's obviously dark subject matter. But um, I'm pleased that it's rallied women across the world, really, to come forward and say, enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And we will, uh, we will definitely get into that because I'm, I'm so curious about your thoughts about like why it's taken off and sort of this worldwide impact. Um, but before we do that, it'd be great to sort of get a sense of like your own history with the sport. So how did you first get involved in gymnastics and what was it about the sport that really appealed to you as a young girl? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I started, it must've been about 1975. Um, so a long time ago, I'm old. Um, and I, you know, I, 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 I got really interested, you know, after the 1976 Olympics when Nadia got her perfect tens. Um, it's important to remember that back then there weren't as many options for girls really in terms of sport. I mean, we didn't have soccer teams and soccer leagues and, you know, baseball and, you know, we just didn't have all the options. It's a long time ago and gymnastics was really one of the only options. And it was certainly um, you know, the most prominent given Nadia's performance mm -hmm. in the Olympics. And the fact that she was so young, you know, she was 14 and she looked young and we could all sort of relate to her, you know, gyms sprouted up across the country at that point and little girls all over the place, you know, begged their parents to get into gymnastics. And, and I was one of those, I mean, I'd started a little bit before that, but I really kind of got super into it and it intensified, um, around the 1976 Olympics. Um, and as far as what appealed, I mean, I sort of talked a little bit about what appealed, but, you know, it's so fun. I mean, there's nothing else like it, right? You flip around. It's, you know, <laughs> it's like playing for a kid. You know, you're on the trampoline and you're bouncing around and you're learning to flip in the air. It's like flying. I mean, there's really nothing like it. And, um, you know, it stayed fun that way for a very, very long time. Um, and I got more serious very quickly. You know, I think I was in my first competition by the time I was seven. And I mean, these were these were pretty serious competitions already, you know, and I think by the time I was nine, I went to my first nationals. So it all yeah. sort of accelerated very quickly. And and while many little girls rushed into the gym, not everybody stayed, you know, it's not for everyone. <laughs> uh, but I had an aptitude for it. And I loved it. And I would have spent my entire day there if I could. You've talked to in other venues on other podcasts about how you trained at the Parquet's gym in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which actually is not super far from me and where I'm in Philly. And, and so I, I looked up the gym's website and right over its history. It's just something I'm always kind of interested in. And it says that um, how in the early 1980s, it wanted a modern training facility. And it also says, quote, of equal importance to them was their interest in providing local children with the opportunity to gain the physical and psychological benefits associated with the sport of gymnastics, end quote. So from what we understand of sort of your own history there and how you like you endured significant physical and mental abuse, I think at this gym, 
Um, now, for listeners unfamiliar with your history, can you explain some of the details about what you experienced there? And sort of to what extent does your experience show or maybe not show that this gym kind of had you encounter these phys- physical and psychological characteristics that the history talks about on the website? Yeah, sure. I mean, and it's important to know that was the third gym that I trained in. So the very first mm-hmm. one was in, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and that got me to sort of the class one level, which is equivalent to what would be called sort of level nines and tens. Now that the levels changed and I went to my first nationals and then the next level is called elite. And that's when you get to compete to be on the national team and that kind of thing. And so I wanted to kind of go from that class one to the elite. And I moved to a nearby gym in New Jersey and I was there for about three years and did qualify for elite and made junior national team there. And I had a really lovely supportive coach and a supportive coaching staff. But I, at that point, wanted to kind of elevate my game further and I was going to be a senior soon and I wanted to kind of break through from the, I was sort of in the top 12 juniors. I wanted to get to like that top six place because that's the, that's when you can go to, you know, worlds and Olympics and all these things. So I um, looked across the country at a range of gyms, including the Carolis, um, as well as the Scats in Southern California. And I did a you know, a few weeks at each. And, and then I looked at Parkettes and those were sort of the top three at the time. Those were the big three. Um, and I chose Parkettes mostly because it was closest to home, quite frankly. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there, you know, this was the early eighties. It was 83. I mean, everybody knew who the Curlies were, but they weren't, you know, the machine that they, they became. And, um, I wasn't so much their type anyway. And I, but I guess the point is, as I, as I went to each of these three gyms, there wasn't kind of a noticeable or discernible difference in kind of how nice, supportive, or kind of domineering they were. You know, they were all pretty brutal in my estimation. Mm-hmm. But i that's what I thought was necessary to get to the level that I wanted. So I chose the one close to home. And in fact, even though it was two hours from my house, we drove the two hours each way at first um, wow. for a few months. And I know, uh, quite a commitment for the family. But I ultimately ended up moving there myself and lived with a coach and I would come home on the weekends, which wouldn't have been possible in those other two places. And eventually my family ended up moving there um, for a time. So I spent probably four years in total. Gosh, it felt longer at Parkettes. It was long. It felt long. Um, and I, I got there about the time when they had built this new training facility. I'd been to their old facility, which was kind of much more rundown. And this was a really grand place. I mean, it was a huge warehouse. It was, you know, state of the art. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that it says that still on their website or that it did. Um, yeah, it still says that. I couldn't I couldn't quite believe that. It's an old website, clearly. Yeah, um, I would say that's marketing, probably. I mean, I, I think that they'd always been known, you know, I was nervous to go there and, you know, it, it, it kind of proved out, but they were always known as... Um, I mean, I, I don't even know what the right word is. A- aggressive. Yeah, they were very aggressive about weight and the way they manage our weight and what we ate. They were, I mean, I, I think abusive, cruel. You know, when I first got there, they were a bit nicer. You know, they sort of reel you in a little bit and they were happy to have me. And and then it just gets pretty brutal pretty fast. Um, and so I would say they don't embody any of that. Not in the slightest. Now, do they with the class kids? Sure, maybe. (laughs) But, you know, their coaching tactics for the team and the team is anyone from a, you know, a level four or five to an elite and they don't really discern. They treat everybody the same that's on the team. Um, I think that their behaviors and coaching tactics for the team kids 
is pretty universally cruel. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to put it. Um, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about it over the years, several decades, in fact. At, you know, at the time, I don't even think I thought much of it because it was kind of standard operating procedure. I didn't expect any different. But it does wear on you over time. Um, obviously, if you're berated and belittled and called names and have things thrown at you and embarrassed for gaining, mm-hmm. you know, half a pound, um, stretched to the point of, you know, meaning like physically stretched, you know, they pull your legs and to the point of, you know, pulling muscles, tearing muscles, training on injuries. I mean, I don't know how to classify that, but, but abuse and, um, you know, it was, it does wear on you after a time, obviously, and it affects how you see yourself and your self-esteem and how you see the world. And, um, you're made to believe that if you suffer from these behaviors that there's something wrong with you, not them. And so then you feel shame at even suffering. So it's this terrible cycle, Mm -hmm. uh, really. So you mentioned the, um, the importance of, of home, um, in your decision on which gym to go to. And I imagine at this point in your life, like, I'm not sure if you had heard about, um, some of the other, some of the issues or some of the, um, what we might call nowadays is like brutality happening at other gyms. But how important was the home factor in your choice for um, attending the gym in your, in your kind of earlier formidable years um, in gymnastics? Well, I mean, it was certainly very important in my choosing parkettes versus either of those other gyms, which were much further away. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we knew, my family knew that it was going to be really intense. And I felt like I probably needed the support of my family. You know, ultimately, as I said, I moved away from home and lived with a coach and was injured fairly soon after that and needed, um, you know, physical therapy. And I, I mean, I didn't have a parent to take me. It became, you know, very challenging, not to mention, you know, it was difficult to recover. I'd broken my ankle. Um, and then at that point is when we sort of made the family decision that my, my mother would move there. And in fact, came with my brother who was also a gymnast. So family for us was always very important. Um, and you know, we were a close, are a close tight knit family. Um, I think as I progressed in this training regimen, I became very withdrawn and sort of shut my family out of what was going on. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, I think largely because I, in this weird, like twisted way, I wanted to continue. And I felt like if I told my parents how I really felt and what was really happening, that they wouldn't have allowed it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we all sort of hid quite a bit from our families Um, and you know, oftentimes there were phases where they weren't allowed in the gym. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. So it was pretty easy to keep it from them. And, you know, as soon as I got there, I did start performing better in competitions. I learned new skills. I started ranking higher. I did also get injured very quickly, um, Mm -hmm. and came back too quickly from that. But I, you know, my parents' assumption was that I was happy because I was, doing better. You know, I think at my first USA championships as a senior with parquets, I placed fifth. So that was way higher than anything I'd ever done before. Um, and so the assumption was, well, she must be happy because, you know, she's climbing the ranks. And I wasn't about to say otherwise, because I was satisfied with that, even as my sort of psychological state was probably declining. 
So th- this like discussion of like overarching cruelty and the things that you experience, I think you like said it best in Athlete A when you said like, and I'm quoting here, the standard methodology of coaching in elite gymnastics is cruelty. I, I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this overarching methodology and why you think this is the case. Why do you think coaches across the world take cruelty as this methodology for coaching in elite gymnastics? And what are your thoughts on how coaching became centered on this idea of cruelty? It's such a good question. And it's the one. So thank you for giving me a sense of what you were going to ask me. I, I don't understand it. Honestly, I don't know why. Mm. But you know, when something becomes standard practice, then everybody replicates it. And the best coaches in the country were coaching this way. And they were doing it back to the 70s as well. I mean, you had the Mulvihills um, in the 70s, and, and they coached this way. So, you know, then everybody else across the country mirrors it. It just becomes so standardized that it's the cruelty part is invisible because it's just what's done. And there was this belief and is still a belief, obviously, that that is just tough coaching. And that is what's required um, to get the best out of an athlete, a child, mind you. Um, And I, you know, I'm not, I I don't think it's unique to gymnastics. You know, I don't, we've seen evidence of it in other sports. We've heard from ice skaters, you know, recently, we've heard from track athletes recently in other countries. You know, just last year, we heard uh, from the young woman at the Nike's Oregon Project, the runner, very Mm -hmm. similar. I mean, I read her story and watched her video and I was like, yeah, I get it. That that is exactly um, how it was. And I, I think to some extent within certain sports, many, there's this very old school idea of what is required to win. And it's kind of beat the athlete down, demand total obedience, overtrain. I mean, it seems so dated and it's so, it's so not the way to get the best out of an athlete, right? Let their injuries heal, be supportive. These are kids that want to work really hard. They'll give you more than you can imagine, but it's just sort of what's been established. And um, for that reason, it's continued, you know, and um you know, the, the, the foxes are guarding the hen house. So they're the ones deciding what is, what is appropriate and what is not. And the entire sport is sort of, you know, I'll speak to gymnastics specifically. It's built around the constituents that frankly matter the least. Um, you know, sport can exist without coaches. Sport can exist without governing bodies. It cannot exist without athletes. And The athletes are the ones that are seen as, you know, commodities. And it's just, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't have a good answer to your question because really the athletes are the only ones that are indispensable. And yet they're the only ones that don't seem to matter. And I think in gymnastics, it's just exacerbated because they're so young. Mm. You know, it's much easier to have control um, when they're as young as they are. And, you know, I think we talk about it in the film a little bit, which is to say, I, I think that's by design. You know, I think that was a way for the coaches to get rest total control, um, you know, to, to insist that these, this sport was only possible by very young children with very immature bodies. You know, that allows them. It's easy to control an eight or a nine-year-old. A grown woman, you know, she might stand up for herself. 
So, you know, that's so interesting that you said that. Um, and so as, as listeners might know, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed uh, Dr. Georgia Servan, who is a, um, she's a historian of gymnastics and she was an elite level gymnast in Australia for a long time. And her, in her research, she did find evidence of the fact that, well, so, so part of this sort of switch to using younger athletes, which you probably heard in the gym was that like, you know, you, that younger athletes can like flip and do the maneuvers better and they're lighter and all those things. Whereas like older women, you know, there are other sort of things to contend with. Um, but p- coaches made comments about how younger gymnasts were easier to work with. And, and yeah. with the implication being, as you said, that they're easy to work with because they're not going to be talking back, that they're not, are not yeah. I don't want to say talking back because that seems very negative, but they're not going to be saying, hey, this hurts my body and like standing right. up for themselves. Right. Hey, this hurts my body. Or, you know what? I'm afraid I don't feel ready to do that. Can we, mm-hmm. you know, do more drills or can I do more training or, um, no, I'm not losing five pounds by tomorrow. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous. Um, but the, the, the thing is, if you, if you, if you enforce obedience in the very young athletes and, you know, most of us were competing and are, you know, at elite or that national level at 10 or 11, which means you're starting really intense training at seven or eight, um, even when you become of age, because many of the Olympians now are over 18, you, you, you've already sort of made this person childlike, you know, they don't even know what treatment to ask for at that point. Um, So you've kind of trained them into obedience. Um, And so it almost doesn't matter that they're of age at that point. And, you know, a lot of folks talk about, well, if the, if the, if the age of the Olympics was older, would that make the difference? And I don't, I don't think that's the, I mean, I, I I think it can help, but I I don't think that's the answer. I don't think that's the cure all, honestly. (laughs) Um, The culture has to change and we have to reimagine this culture as one that is sort of centered on athlete safety and child well-being, person well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say when you said seven or eight years old, I was just, it, you know, I've read a fair bit about it and I was a swimmer and, you know, we, we started intensifying a little bit later in our early teens, but seven or eight is so young. I mean, that just, that just really blows my mind. It's kind of insane. I mean, it's like first grade. Seven. Yeah. You know, think about it. I don't know if you have kids. I have I have four and I think about my two older ones when they were that age. And like I can't even imagine letting them Mm -hmm. do what I did or exposing them to that. It's it's just insane. Um so you know, I and, and I think because we're told that that younger body, you can't mature, we need to be smaller to do the flips, to do the this, to do the that. Um it it just it 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 causes all of these other issues because it makes it appear that the window of opportunity is very narrow, mm-hmm. right? You got to make it by the time you're 17. Other than, if it's later than that, it's too late, and so that prompts all sorts of bad behaviors like overtraining and training on injuries because you don't want to miss a season. I mean, you might only have three or four seasons in your whole career as an elite athlete, you know, mm-hmm. as an elite gymnast, and so. You're not going to miss nationals to qualify for USA's, to qualify for Olympic trials or to qualify for worlds because you might not have another shot. And, you know, one of the biggest issues I had was just that, the overtraining and the not recovering from injuries. And so, you know, I broke one ankle when I got to Parkettes in under a year in a competition. I had a cast 10 days. 
and went back. It wasn't healed. Um, I then ended up breaking my femur at world championships in 85 and definitely didn't let that heal and ended up then breaking the other ankle um, less than a year later, because you're just, you know, you're favoring one leg. You're, it's going to prompt another injury. And so but part of that is the perception that you have this very narrow window of opportunity. And that like that narrow window of opportunity is such an individualistic take that it, it is up to you to do this during your window. And it completely ignores all of the structural things that are at play in order to make somebody like a, a successful athlete and in order to provide people with the physical and mental support to be able to be a an elite athlete in this in this context. And I feel like that narrative that like is downloaded on young athletes to like you only have this like one window. So therefore you have to make the most of it actually does a, a ton of harm yeah. um, to these yeah. young athletes. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And it's false. And I don't, I mean, I believe the coaches think that. So I don't think they're lying. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's the sort of accepted story that's told, but that doesn't mean it's true. Just mm -hmm. because that's how we've always done it doesn't mean it's true. And there's certainly women in the sport that defy that. I mean, you know, Simone is, Biles is in her 20s. There were quite a few women on the 84 Olympic team who, you know, had qualified for 80 and we didn't go. And so they kept training and they were in their 20s. So, you know, the 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 proof abounds that it's it's not the case, but um, that's the kind of accepted story and that's the kind of accepted um, take on it that drives a lot of the training regimens. You know, one of the things I've observed in the last few months is, you know, obviously athletes have had this forced time off and, you know, in gymnastics, you're told you can never take a vacation. You know, we'd have like two days a year off. You know, you didn't go on a family vacation once you were training in earnest and you were told if you had a week off, it would take you two weeks to get back to where you were. And I see all these athletes around the world who've now had months off due to um, the, the shutdowns and they're going, they're starting to go back in some States and they say they've never been stronger and they've never been better because they've rested and their injuries have healed. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's, I mean, it's bullshit, frankly. And mm -hmm. yet, it's the story that's been been fed to us. Um, and I, you know, I think in, in following up to your point, also, th this sort of acceptance of this cruel co coaching methodology as the only way to get winners and champions is, is also not true. And I, I believe we lose more than we gain. And we lose so many great athletes. Um, Either because, you know, perhaps they're like, this isn't worth it. I'm out of here. <laughs> or because they literally are broken and they fall apart. I mean, that's not weakness. If you if no. you try to break a child and they break, that's, I, I don't know what you thought was going to happen. Um, but that's billed as weakness in the sport. And, you know, those that make it through, it's a point of pride that they were strong enough to take it. So there is a whole sort of school of thought, even amongst the athletes that, you know, because they feel sort of heroic if they were able to persevere and persist. And so, I mean, I can name so many, and I would even put myself in that group that were lost to the abusive coaching and the excessive injuries and the eating disorders. I could have continued longer if I had more humane coaches and was allowed to heal. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And yeah, in terms of like the numbers of, of people lost, like the, the talent lost, it's, there's just no, like knowing what, I guess what could have been is sort of the big question. Yeah, you don't know. I mean, I use uh, Maddie Larson as an example, who was one of the Nasser survivors as a young woman in her 20s, had gone to world championships. And, you know, she and I have shared our stories and much of her coaching environment was very much like mine. She had severe injuries that weren't allowed to heal. And she eventually just kind of faded away. And I mean, she's just was so brilliantly talented. It's like, we lost her from the Mm -hmm. abuse. You know, she, she, she could have been an Olympian. She should have been an Olympian. We could field two Olympic teams, you know, but I mean, you're not allowed to do that, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I just, I, I just I, I just think the whole sort of line we've been fed, the athletes, the parents, what the coaches believe, it's just not true. And I guess my my second point would be, even if it is true, even if that's the only way, are we okay with that? Mm. I mean, I'm not. You know, to me, it's like if you're going to, you know, abuse and belittle a generation of, of young women, of young girls, just so that a few of them can win, I, I'm sorry. I, that doesn't line up with my values. And I don't think it aligns up with most parents' values or American values. Yeah, I mean, what you're, what you're really showing us here is sort of like the power of like the narrative or the the power of, I don't know if it's the brand or kind of whatever it is, the power of the message that's been taught to like generations of of athletes and parents and also the U.S. public with it being, you know, a slightly different narrative, but just being told over and over again that, you know, these things are all worth it, right? That like these are um, informative experiences for athletes. I mean, again, I was a swimmer, swimming is a different example, but like in our team model, we had the phrase personal excellence through right. sport. And it, it's like, what, what is that when you have like 13 year old kids that are waking up at 3.30 a.m.? Like, is that personal excellence or is that, yeah. you know, like, like re- really hurting them? Um, so, well, yeah. If we go back and, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, some of the, some of what people say is that the, the sort of, the Carolis brought that cruelty here, but I observed it way back into the 70s. So I, I don't believe that at all. I think that they brought it here it was here already and they made it heroic, you know, and they got famous themselves and wealthy themselves off of, you know, their persona. So, you know, it was here long before. And in fact, if we didn't have the sort of aptitude and capacity for it, we would have rejected it when they got here, but we loved it, you know? So, you know, we had, we had plenty of, um, of cruel coaching, um, in the United States, you know, back to the early seventies, they just solidified that as the way to do it because the U S team started winning. Could you expand a little bit on like your view of the Corolla? Like we've talked about the Corollis at length. We had an entire uh, gymnastics week, which we would have loved if this episode timed up with that um, incredibly well. But we did an entire week on basically the culture of gymnastics in the United States and the Corollis in general and their influence on gymnastics in the United States. Could you just like give us a little bit of your own take on how you perceive the Corollis' influence on um, U.S. gymnastics? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I was obviously training here years before they got there, got here. And so, you know, I can cite plenty of examples of coaches that were weight obsessed, used, you know, berating and belittling of the athletes, all, you know, sexual abuse was certainly um, present. And I, the, the Curleys didn't sexually abuse their athletes. I don't mean to suggest that, but this sort of abusive culture, emotional, physical, sexual abuse was present here as far back as I can remember, which is the early seventies. You know, they came in, I think 1982 um, and set up shop in Texas and, you know, got Mary Lou on board and, you know, she won the Olympics and, you know, that, that made them famous here that made her famous. And I, I think I read a great piece about the Carolis, um just yesterday by Devorah Myers and, he has a, you know, the, he's sort of incredibly American in a sense. Like he's this P.T. Barnum type character. You know, he in, invented this whole persona for himself um, that made him rich and famous. And it made the whole thing about him. And, you know, he went to war with the American coaches when he got here. You know, the 84 Olympic team coach was not Bella. It was Don Peters, who has been banned at this point for sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one knows that. I mean, Bella was the hero, you know, he swept Mary Lou up. He made everything about him. And it was that, that really made the girls commodities and totally dispense, you know, disposable, dispensable, all of these things. Um, but you know, that cemented his kind of place in American gymnastics and that became the club to go to. Now, you know, the 96 Olympics, was the magnificent seven, you know, five of the seven girls on that team were not Bella's. It's not like he's the only one that produced champions. <laughs> you know, he had Dominique Mosianu and Carrie Strug for the famous vault. Um, and the other five girls were not Bella's girls. So there have always been coaches that produce champions. Um, the best champions we've ever had in a sense, you know, I mean, Simone never trained there. Um, mm-hmm. Gabby Douglas never trained there. We Allie Raisman never trained there. But everybody thinks he's, you know, the one that created all the champions, he and Marta. And really, they just positioned themselves as such and made themselves very famous. They did bring the idea of a centralized program to America. Mm-hmm. They did not bring cruelty, but they brought the idea of a centralized program. So you know, when I trained, we didn't really have a centralized program. You trained at your private club, you went through the system, you qualified, you went to nationals. If you made the team, then, you know, the top five to seven girls who made the world team or made the Olympic team would have a training camp for two weeks and then you'd go. They created this idea, which they did bring from Romania, of sort of centralizing the system and you'd have this approach where they, the Carolis, picked the best girls from around the country and put them into this machine. And they would all then come to training camps once a month and they'd pick very young ones for the TOPS program and then they'd curate the national team. Um, And that created, or I would say exacerbated a dynamic that already existed, which is you really needed to not make trouble you needed to fall in line, you know, if you spoke up about anything, if you complained about anything, if you complained about an injury, you weren't going to get selected. Even if you qualified, right, in the top whatever, you weren't going to get picked to come to training camp. If you did get picked to come to training camp, you wouldn't get picked for the team. So 
in nationalizing the, this program, they created sort of more subjectivity and select so more of a selection process. You know, the sport's already subjective. It's not a race. It's not whoever crosses. There's judging. Um, and in a sense, that subjectivity creates a problematic dynamic as well. Yeah. And, you know, one comment that I'll, that I'll um, add to that is, is someone who studies like Eastern Bloc sport. I don't study Romania specifically, but I know enough sort of about uh, most of the systems in the Eastern Bloc is it's like from a, an American perspective, what they did was like centralizing, but it's yeah. so, it's so far, it's so different from what even happened. I mean, it's not it's so different, but it's such a small slice of what they did in the Eastern Bloc because over there, the centralization starts when kids are young, at least by the time we get to the 60s, kids are like uh, physical education teachers are sort of pointing out kids when they're like five and is saying, you should go check right. out this local club. And like, so there are relations between physical education teachers and coaches who then have connections to regional right. coaches and sort of leadership. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, the, the centralization in the Eastern Bloc is much more thorough. Um, but in terms of saying like, we're going to get, you know, this number of elite athletes together in one place, like that was certainly a huge difference. Um, right. From, but they from are what was going also, on the US. I mean, there's a, there is a degree of what you described. Now it's not through the schools and you don't have the physical education teachers, but you do have for girls as young as seven, you know, this tryout for this feeder program, this tops program which I think is a bit on pause right now, but um, you do have that and you have kids, you know, so the, the, the recommendations aren't coming from the schools and the, the physical education teachers, but they are coming from the gyms and there's this tops program that these kids are vying to be a part of. And then you're in the system and you're seven and eight years old um, and you're, you know, you want to stay in good favor. And even those very young kids are coming to training camps with no competition that they're training for. They're coming to training camps several times a year to be assessed um, and to stay in the good graces at the time of the Carolis. It's not them anymore. So it, it's, it's accelerated. You know, it isn't just the older girls training together a few times a year now. There is this feeder program with the very young athletes. Um, so they've, you know, they've tried to replicate it as best they can in, in our system. Yeah. Can you, I've never heard of the TOPS program. Can you give us like a quick and dirty sort of explanation of what that is? I mean, I'll tell you, I'm not an expert in it because it didn't exist when I did it. Allie writes about it in her book, Allie Raisman. I mean, it's essentially a program for very talented young athletes and there's like a testing regimen and you can submit your child, meaning your, your athlete from your gym. Um, for this TOPS program, and then they're selected um, by the the coaches and the leadership at USAG. And once they qualify, and I think you can be as young as seven, um, once you qualify, you are sent to these um, training programs several times a year. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks so much. Um, so in, in, in your book and in, in a lot of the interview interviews you've done, uh, you provide really, really damning evidence. And you've talked about this already, but of the immense pressure that coaches and even judges could place on athletes to lose weight and, and to not really challenge their authority. 
For example, you've recalled how gyms uh, would announce athletes' weight over the loudspeaker if someone gained half a pound, which just sounds like horrific, physically and psychologically damaging on so many levels. And, you know, half a pound could very easily be water weight, right? Like what you need to survive. Um, And so I'm just curious, why do you think that these issues of like your weight of, of women's weight and fat phobia and authority, like why are they so... I guess, harped upon within the sport of my coaches? Why are they such central issues? Yeah. And I mean, that was my gym that did the loudspeakers. So I don't know if the others mm. do that, but I, I know they all have or have had, um, you know, stringent practices around weight and belittling for weight. You know, you hear across the board, fat pig, all these kinds of insults and Um, you know, I was told doing gymnastics at my weight was like doing it with a 10 pound bag of sugar strapped to my back. I think I had 2% body fat at the time or something. Um, You know, I think it's related to this. I mean, I think the coaches really believe that, you know, there's this aesthetic that's established and they believe that that's what enables these kids to do these skills. I think they, the coaches really believe that. But I think that it really is a a means of control. You know, again, we were so starved that we, you know, we didn't menstruate. I didn't get my period until I was 19 and in college. And so, and it was actually considered a bad thing to get your period. You know, you know, coaches wanted that process reversed. That's wild. That's, I have to say, that is like absurd and wild and and terrible. So I just wanted to say that. Sorry for interrupting. And it was just, it was everywhere. This is, this is a little bit of a a sort of funny story, but it was the accepted sort of thing that you didn't want your athlete to mature physically. You didn't want your child to. And I was at some, I think it was USA's, USA championships in 1983. And my parents were sitting with another set of parents in the stands. My dad's a pediatrician. Um, and this other father, his daughter was the tallest girl in juniors and sort of the most developed. And he asked my dad, how can we make sure that she doesn't start menstruating? And my dad was so horrified. (laughs) He had an answer, which I, he said, you could get her pregnant to try to prove to him what a ridiculous thing that was to do. Um, I don't, but that, my point was, that's a, parents saying that. So it was sort of driven into the culture. Like even parents were, I'm not saying every parent, but like it was accepted that you had to keep a very immature body with a very low body weight. It was an obsession. I mean, I was at a training camp in 1987. And my coaches were so obsessed with my weight. At this point, I was 17, I think. So I was quote unquote old. And they had the sports psychologist talk to me and did this whole family intake and family history. Um, you know, was my mother overweight, my father overweight, my brother? And I said, no. And they said, so what, what, why do you think it's so hard for you? And mm-hmm. I mean, I was under a hundred pounds, 17 or 18 years old. Um, it was just drilled into everybody. It's the belief. And I, I think, you know, the body type now is a bit different than when we did it. It's much stronger. I mean, the skills they do are so difficult. They have to be so strong. And I sort of watched that with some degree of hopefulness that the behaviors drilled in were less problematic, but it it doesn't seem that's the case from what I understand in talking to, you know, athletes leaving the sport. It still seems like there's this obsessive focus on weight 
It's just the accepted aesthetic has evolved a bit. It's a bit stronger. Now, so for full disclosure here, I'm a, a sociologist, like typically interested in things that surround like surveillance overall as like this, like, as you mentioned, the, this kind of technique of control. So I'm really interested in getting your take specifically on the surveillance of bodies in the context of gymnastics, like surveillance scholars and people whom I, I have engaged with have long viewed sport as this sort of apparatus that intensifies the surveillance of bodies. And I'd, I'd probably add that this is done in a very racialized sense. Like there's a, a particular power dynamic that exists. Um, I just want to get your thoughts on the impacts of the overarching kind of gaze of gymnastics bodies, gym, gymnasts bodies, I should say, by those who have power, like very material power over those athletes. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's not just racialized, it's gendered. Mm. Um, you know, and I think this notion of kind of acceptable body types, acceptable body shapes is much more, you know, your worth coming from the way you look is very yeah. gendered in our world. You know, very successful men can have, you know, pot bellies and no one ever talks about it. But if a very <laughs> successful woman has a few extra pounds, you still talk about her weight. I mean, you know, everyone's talked about Oprah's weight for years. Who cares? Who cares? And so this sort of, there's just this accepted idea, you know, when you take it outside of sport that women's bodies are fair game to comment on, that there's one sort of acceptable way to look and way to be. And if you're not that, well, we all get to comment. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's that different than the sort of world at large mm. in terms of you know, gazing upon female bodies and kind of determining whether they're worthy or not. And it's a way to sort of, I mean, it, it takes any kind of power and autonomy away and it humiliates and diminishes that person. So it's a control, it's a tactic of control. Um, it removes any sense of self-worth in the athlete or the girl or the woman, you know? Um, and I actually, you know, I, I had, I came out of the sport with an eating disorder, which I kind of mastered while doing the sport. And I sort of always thought as my eating and my sort of body image became more disordered, you know, I sort of could always look at myself from above, you know, and I thought, well, I'll just do this here, but I'll leave the sport and everything will be fine. But it doesn't work that way, right? It gets into mm -hmm. your thinking and you internalize it. And so I left and I felt like anybody that didn't look like that body was not good and therefore I wasn't good. And I I got into a really, really bad cycle. Um, but then I also sort of became an avowed feminist while I was in college. And I I was really conflicted because I felt like I spend so much time thinking about how I look, figuring out how to look different thinking my self-worth is through the way that I look. And yet 
I believe that I have something meaningful to contribute to the world, but I'm occupying 90% of my brain space with all of this superficial garbage that other people made me think was important. And so I literally willed myself to get through it because I said, you know, men aren't doing this. Men aren't sitting around spending 90% of their time counting calories and hating their bodies. And if I spend all this time doing that, how am I going to make the contributions that I want to make? And I realized that's a really sort of, um, I realized a lot of people wouldn't kind of approach it that way. Like therapy, therapy didn't work for me to overcome it, but getting angry and wanting to (laughs) make different intellectual contributions is what sort of forced me to get through it. But it takes away all of your agency. So I think there's a benefit to the, to men, frankly, um, for having us still all believe. And I, I, you know, I, I don't believe all men are bad, but I, I think that sort of that the, the tools, it subjugates women. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying men don't have eating disorders. They don't. But they're in a much higher degree. It's a much bigger problem amongst women. And, mm-hmm. you know, this notion that women are only valued for what they're worth and what their body. I mean, that's much more gendered, you know. And I, I'm not mm-hmm. saying at all that men don't suffer um, from it. But I think it's a way to kind of wrest control from women and sort of keep them quiet. Could you speak to um agency amongst young athletes who have a power to speak up against the surveillance of their bodies or like really what I'm kind of trying to get at a little bit here is like what would happen if you were to speak up against the powers kind of telling you and definitely the patriarchal powers telling you how your body should look how your body should operate how you should what you're saying is like menstruate, all of these things. Like, Well, there was no space. I mean, if there were space, then that wouldn't exist. It sort of defeats the whole purpose, giving the child space to speak up and sort of define herself, to, to have a voice and to define herself on her own terms and to feel good about herself and to not accept abuse. I mean, it, it isn't just the sort of the body stuff and the body image stuff. It's all a means to sort of demand obedience and to exert total control over these kids, you know, so there is no space for it. And that's, that, that's my issue at the end of the day is, yeah, isn't sport, isn't what we all say it is. It's what you, you know, you read to me in the beginning that the park had said they would do (laughs) through sport. Isn't the whole idea of having young kids do sport to develop healthy minds and bodies and sort of self-esteem and, um, learn that they can overcome adversity and learn that it's okay to lose and you get up and you pick yourself up and you try again. But really at the end of the day, sport is about sort of building self-esteem. It's very few people that will ever compete at the Olympic or professional level. I mean, it has to be like, you know, 0.1% of the people, less than maybe that ever enter, you know, a sporting arena. And so it has to be about something bigger than winning championships. And so we all believe that it is, and that that's what sport is for. And that's why we send our kids to play soccer and baseball and do gymnastics. And yet, if they get good, then we don't believe that anymore. Then we believe it's mm-hmm. about extracting self-esteem and exerting power so they can succeed. It's it's such a contradiction. It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. And, you know, I totally agree. And, you know, when I read that line on the website um, about how, let me go back to it, how um, it'll like, 
allow children to gain the physical and psychological, maybe not benefits, but like issues associated with the sport of gymnastics. Like, you know, well, I guess they kind of achieve that because if you think now right. of the things that like, you know, the last couple of years that are associated with gymnastics, it are these things that you're listing. I just kind of thought that was like, yeah, I, I mean, know, I think- me being cynical self, but yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously what we're thinking the physical and psychological benefits are not what they're thinking they are. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. They didn't really tell us what they were. But, you know, I think we <laughs> generally all agree that, you know, you put children in sports for those, the physical benefits, the self-esteem benefits, and yet it's just sort of so ironic that then we collectively would accept, really, that if the kid gets really good, that's no longer what it's about. It's about training on injuries and overtraining and, you know, eating disorders and, you know, taking away the child's agency. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So I have a question that may seem a bit specific, but it's just something that I've like really been thinking about over the last decade and a half as I like think back on like when I finished college swimming and just kind of regrets I have about that. And um, I I talked about this in my episode, but um, I kind of went through two, I had two different coaches that at two different times really like harped on me that I needed to lose weight. Um, And and I, yeah, like like you had said, I went through two um, fortunately brief periods where I had really badly disordered eating, like literally just facing, basically eating fruit all the time. Um, was just really bad. And in order to lose what they wanted me to lose and both times, like I I got so much weaker because I was losing, I was losing muscle. And so then I just like continued down this tailspin of like, I'm, I'm still not doing something right, which is terrible. Like that's not what the issue was. The issue was I wasn't feeding myself what I needed. And it just, and, and, you know, my times in the pool just got like the, were the worst I ever had. And it just made me think like, if, if gymnasts for, for years are being told like, you need to lose weight, you need to lose weight. Like how could they keep any strength and sort of how could they perform well? And you had mentioned, um, how at the 85 world champs that several of the team members were pulled aside and told like, you must lose weight by any means possible to make it to the competition floor, but this seems to run counter to actually competing well. So I would just love to sort of hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's ineffective, you know, again, I think it's about achieving that sort of ideal aesthetic. Um, But I, you know, I think in addition to kind of overtraining and not letting myself heal, I'm sure that poor eating contributed to the injuries as well. Um, But I, I think, you know, while I never sort of felt myself getting noticeably weaker, I think, you you know, fear is very motivating. And, I, you know, there is a feeling that you get when you are hungry that is almost euphoric. And you can force yourself through a lot. You know, people live through all kinds of things and kind of force them to do, um, force themselves to do what we might consider not possible. And, I don't know. We summoned strength somehow. I, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have done better if I'd eaten. I probably would have if I had a healthy mm. diet. But, um, and I certainly had some injuries right before I went to world championship trials. I fell on beam and cracked my head open and I needed stitches, mm. but I didn't get them. And I wow. broke a couple of fingers and I had not eaten anything but fruit for a few days because I was told I needed to lose weight for the competition. And that, you know, they wouldn't take a fat gymnast to world championship trials. And so two days before I 
I mean, I basically passed out on the beam in the middle of a a skill. And so it certainly had repercussions. But for the most part, I I don't know how, you know, on 400 calories a day or whatever it is we ate, we pulled ourselves together. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's wild. 400 calories a day. That that was my personal number that I would like write meticulously in my journal. I'm sure everybody had a different number. (laughs) I, I quite literally cannot even fathom that like i don't know how i would eat throughout the day without 400 calories yeah i don't know i think i ate that in 30 seconds before i got on the phone (laughs) (laughs) So, so you've said previously that gymnastics is almost like a cult because everyone kind of buys into this overarching culture and i like i'm gonna add the layer of like harmful culture I think in in many ways there are some obviously some positive aspects that you've outlined very brilliantly but but overall like there is this harmful culture that kind of insidiously permeates the, the entire sport and we think that this means not only that like parents buy into it but also that media ensures that that audience that you know parents with young girls and future gymnasts also buy into this Earlier in the podcast, um, we had like uh, another episode. We had MLB former MLB player Dirk Hayhurst, um, and he talked about the baseball community being like a cult. Can you explain a little bit more about why you think gymnastics is akin to a uh, to a cult? What kind of dynamics make it that way, and to what extent is is this specific? to gymnastics but also characteristic of of more like just elite sports in general well i mean i never competed in another elite sport so it's hard for me to know what those are like i i think many individual sports can have cult-like qualities i can't speak to to baseball but you know when i say that i mean it's very inward facing and sort of cut off from the world and um and that's what allows these sort of bad behaviors to to fester, you know, yeah, to, yeah. to to normalize. Like if if the outside world were let in, and I want to address the point about the media, but like it would be so clear this was unacceptable. You know, if you say to somebody, okay, this coach is responsible for all of these children. They spend eight hours a day with these children. They travel the world with them. Okay, so this is a person who's in charge of a child's well-being, right? And if you said to an average person on the street that they berate them and belittle them, they call them names, they fat shame them, they weigh them two or three times a day, they take food away from them. If you said, would it be okay for a teacher to do that to a child? Everyone would be horrified. Mm. They would say, absolutely not. But somehow in this kind of closed off environment, you know, they, it's no one understands. This is what we need to do to train the way we need to train everybody else stay out, which is why a lot of Jim's parents aren't even allowed in, but then the parents accept that, um, which is sort of cult like also, and they convince Mm -hmm. everybody that this is what's necessary. And if a girl complains, then she's too weak and she can leave. She's kicked out of the cult. Um, if a parent complains, then they don't get it. And, you know, if you, if you kind of broaden the aperture on that, if you leave the sport and you say something like I did in my book and you sort of 
kind of get a, a broader sense of the world and you start to think, well, maybe that was not appropriate treatment, then then you are just a bitter, angry ex-gymnast and a loser because you didn't go to the Olympics, right? Yeah. If you, you know, like Dominique Mosian, who dare to say anything bad, because, you know, you tra- she trained at the Carolis and she she left and dared to say anything bad about that cult, then she's crazy and has a broken family and whatever else. Because they couldn't say she was a loser. She went to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's interesting about what's happening now, and, and and it stays very cult-like because it's so ingrained that even as these girls leave and they become women and they leave, even if they suffer from it, from the treatment, they still believe in it. So their suffering is their fault. There's something wrong with them. They were too weak because obviously it's fine. Look, it produces all these great athletes. And so it sort of keeps everybody quiet. It keeps everybody bought in. Now, and, you know, the treatment we all got, if we dared to kind of call it out, was it was harrowing. And so why would anyone want to do that? You know, it's much easier to kind of say we're the problem. Um, Now, the the press bought into it. And that's where I really have an issue because their job is to be objective and to interrogate these things. And I have talked to several reporters who feel they failed in that regard. And they sort of bought into the myth of the Carolis and they even criticized athletes that would criticize Bella. Um, And so, you know, that's the job of the press, right? Is to maintain Mm -hmm. objectivity and not buy the PR. Um, and yet they did buy the PR of this program, the Carolis USAG, this notion of these, you know, pretty happy girls bouncing around um, and that, you know, everything must be fine because they're winning. They bought the whole PR story. So could you give us a little bit more um, that you, you mentioned that like the, the, the media played a particularly complicit role in in maybe hiding some of some of the harm associated with gymnastics could you take us a little bit deeper into your thoughts on the media's complicity complicity in all of this yeah i mean i i don't think they hid it i just think they bought the pr you know i think it's that simple they didn't interrogate it you know until indy star interrogated um, the culture at USAG. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think they were actively hiding anything. I just don't think that they were doing the job of investigation and they were sort of accepting Mm. what was sold to them. They weren't writing news. They were writing PR. I mean, it was propaganda. Can I, can I jump in and ask like what was being sold to them? And I guess I ask in part because, you know, like I'm coming at this, like have, you know, watching athlete a listening to heavy metals. Right. So I kind of have that in my brain, but I'm just curious as someone who's like, li- like seen it and lived it, you know, what, what was being spun about the Carolis and USA gymnastics and stuff like that. I mean, it's not even the Carolis, it's the sport. It's these happy mm-hmm. little girls and pin curls and sparkles bouncing around and having fun. And aren't they sweet? Isn't this great? Look how much fun they're having. They're smiling and they're waving to the audience and, Oh, look, this is the, it's this sport. It's so feminine and look how cute they are. And like, oh, we can get all these sponsors. Um, That's what was sold. Yeah. That's, that was what was sold, you know, and, you know, and, and Bella was this like big bear of a man that seemed jolly on the competition floor, although we all knew he wasn't. And 
So it was like this big bear of a man protecting these cute little girls who were having this great time. That was the story that was sold to sponsors. That was the story sold to Americans watching the Olympics. Um, I don't know. Did I don't think people want to watch if they think the girls are being abused. Maybe they do. They certainly, it, it's less appealing. <laughs> um, so, so to kind of follow up and, and go on to the next question we had about sort of sponsorships is um, we know that there, that there seems to have sort of been this shift from like the 80s to the 90s. And I could be wrong about their chronology where sort of USA Gymnastics gets um, get, starts getting a lot of money from sponsorship deals. And so what impact did that have on the sport? Well, I think it's the... I think two things happened. I think you had um, leaders step into USAG that were sports marketers, that that was their goal is to bring money in. Um, But I think simultaneously the team started winning, you know, on the world stage. And so that enabled them to bring more money in. And those two things go hand in hand. It's sort of a chicken egg thing. I don't know which came first. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that just raises the stakes. And it just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it makes it 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 makes it more important to sell this ideal of little girlhood and to keep them smiling and quiet. Um, it means the stakes are raised for the leadership at USAG because there's more money in it for them individually, because if they raise more money in sponsorship dollars, they make more money themselves. Yeah. Um and so the stakes are just raised, right? Everyone can make more money. Little girls, just do what I tell you. Don't make noise. Don't make a fuss. And by the way, if there's anything, any whiff of scandal, um, abuse, sexual abuse, that needs to be kept quiet because no one wants to sponsor an organization that harbors pedophiles. Yeah. So you you shared your experiences with abuse um, in the sport in a very public way. And, and very early on, 2008, in your memoir, Chalked Up, which we will certainly be linking in, in the show notes, what made you want to publish the book, first off? And what did you think was sort of missing from the conversation about gymnastics that your experiences could potentially add to? So I, it wasn't that... Um, strategic. Like I, I didn't really think there was, I didn't think about whether anything was missing in the conversation, although there weren't any first person accounts of abuse. There was Joan Ryan's book in 96, which is more of a journalistic account. And um, I mean, she did an incredible job, I think, but it is different when you hear it from, you know, first person from someone that was an insider she was dismissed as an outsider that wouldn't understand, but that's not why I wrote it. I, I wrote it to just make sense of my own um, trauma from the sport. You know, I just sort of sat down to mm-hmm. kind of make sense of it all. Cause I was 20 years out and still sort of struggling with it. Um, and my intention wasn't necessarily to write an expose about gymnastics, but to really write more of a coming of age story. And, you know, you, you know, you emerge from the sport, I did anyway, and I know many do, broken emotionally and psychologically and physically, and it takes years to kind of rebuild yourself and and to kind of get to the point where you get to decide for yourself who you are and what you're going to be and that you're not going to kind of accept this idea that you were a loser or you were fat or you were stupid or you were any of these things that you were told. It takes a long time to get through that. And so 
it was really about that for me is kind of like laying out the process of defining myself on my own terms. And, you know, I sat down to write it to kind of make sense of everything. I didn't necessarily know it would get published. I mean, I wrote the whole thing before I went to get an agent. It wasn't like I, you know, I'm not an Olympian. I wasn't famous. I had to sell it on the merits of the, of the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so we'd, we'd really like to hear about how you became involved in athlete a as a producer. Um, can you explain a bit about how this came about and sort of what were the motivations for creating this documentary when At the Heart of Gold had been released, I think, about a year earlier? Yeah. So I initiated this. You know, I had mm-hmm. been immersed in this world and I knew many of the Nasser survivors because, you know, because I wrote the book, I became kind of like an early whistleblower and I'd become a source for reporters. So I knew the Indy Star reporters and I um, I knew the civil attorney. Um, for many of the Nasser uh, survivors, John Manley, and I had sort of educated him to some extent about the culture and the sport. And I, so as I kind of got to know everybody and I stood with them, they trusted me. And I felt like this story was worth telling in, in film format. So I kind of put together my little pitch and went looking for a director. And I quickly met um, Bonnie Cohen and John Shank through another one of the producers, Julie Bonello. Um, and I gave them my thoughts and my ideas. Like I wanted it to be, you know, to sort of use the Nasser event as a way in to telling the story of the broader culture of abuse and not just to make it this sort of lurid tale about Larry Nasser, um, but to use it to explore the broader culture. That was my intention. I pitched that to them. They liked it. And then they went and made it. And I helped kind of get all of the women that I knew to participate and was kind of the historical reference point, you know, Mm. but that's kind of how it started. As far as, I mean, we started shooting before Heart of Gold. Um, We, it didn't impact knowing that that was going to get made. That did not impact our decision-making one way or the other. We felt like we had a unique take on it. Um, We felt like the journalistic aspect was very unique. Um, We had Maggie. and Rachel, who committed to us because I knew them well and, and, you know, they trusted me. And so we just, we felt like the story was big enough, frankly, that, you know, it was possible to tell it more than one way. There's 500 victims. Um, and we felt like our take on it was unique and, and we didn't want to rush to get ours out. We wanted, the story was still evolving and kind of still taking place. So we, you know, at some point we had to pick an end point cause it's still evolving obviously, but, um, mm we didn't feel like we needed to rush to beat their film or anything. We needed to let our story be told. So why do you think athlete eight took off? I I would argue like took off to the extent that my own family, they were all watching it. Almost everyone around me on like Twitter was watching this. Why do you think at this moment athlete eight kind of took off? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things I think, one, we are sort of shut down. So people have time and they're probably watching, you know, maybe more Netflix than usual. But I, I don't actually think that's the main reason. Um, I I think it's a really good film, you know, and I think- I, I, I agree. I yeah. think we on the show would agree. So, you know, I think it has a propulsion. It has a clear narrative structure. It sort of, you know, you're on this journey with the investigative journalists. Um, you know, it's not 
just people talking about their experiences, it has a clear sort of, it has clear sort of structure and movement forward and you want to know what happens and it actually reveals new information and it actually sort of forces the viewer to think about things differently. You know, it's provocative in that way. I think one of the most provocative parts, at least in terms of the feedback we get from people is everyday viewers have to think differently about how they watch this sport. And the Carrie Strug moment, which I sort of narrate, is one of the moments where that happens. And so, you know, we all agree that Nasser is horrible. No one's defending that. A film just about that would not make us think differently about anything. But because this sort of interrogates the entire system and the entire culture, we really have to kind of ponder that and ask ourselves, you know, what can we do differently, either as parents or coaches or um, watchers, viewers of the sport? And I think, you know, a film that we're, and I, I'll be, I haven't watched At the Heart of Gold. You know, I, we all kind of didn't want to watch it. We didn't want it to kind of inform our thinking about our own. But mm -hmm. so I'm, this isn't a comment about that film. But I think a film that, if a film just sort of laid out how horrible Larry Nasser is, which he is, he's evil. There's not new information there, you know? So I just, I think this was a more provocative take and really looked at the culture more broadly and makes us think about it. And, and I think the reason we're seeing the response from athletes around the world right now who are standing up and telling their stories of abuse, and they're all stories of emotional and physical abuse, is because it does, it implicates the whole system. So these athletes from around the world can see themselves in it, right? If you just told a story about Larry Nasser, the only people that can see themselves in that are the survivors, right? Whereas if this is saying the whole system is broken and that allowed for him to do what he did, so many more athletes are then able to, it's able to sort of break through that cult thinking and, and the, what's described in the film resonated with them and they get, they then go, this did happen to me. I mm -hmm. don't have to be okay with this. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've been like contemplating a lot in, in our own podcasts and our own sort of gymnastics week on, uh, that's honestly probably been surrounding the Corollis more than it probably should have is the fact that like, we constantly like to think of the Corollis as these sort of quote unquote bad apples that kind of came to the United States and like infiltrated um, a system and corrupted it in such a way that it made um, it changed the whole structure of the world as if like this was from the outside and we didn't there, there were no structural issues amongst U.S. gymnastics to begin with. And I, I like we would probably argue the historian and the sociologist in the group, both Johanna and myself, would probably argue that this like paints a relatively bleak picture uh, of uh, or a more global picture of, you know, like American distaste for communism and, and American like trying to sort of other everyone else as if the only problems in American culture and in this case, gymnastics culture are brought to us from sort of these quote unquote communists who bring this like incredibly brutal way of life into our sport. 
I'm curious to get your thoughts on one, that sort of overarching critique and to what extent have you discussed or chatted with historians and sociologists who would like pinpoint that as being one of the central features um, that might be either missing from Athlete Day or just in general missing from the narrative of the Corollis coming here as quote unquote bad apples? Well, I mean, I think USAG would like us to believe that we've got a bad apple situation with Nasser and now everything's fine. Or even now with the Corollis who they defended, but now it sort of simplifies things to be able to say, well, you know, Nasser and the Corollis are gone and so everything's fine. But that isn't the case. And that's why I'm sort of so dogged about saying, you know, the Corollis didn't bring cruelty and coaching here. They just kind of cemented it. It was here long before they got here. I, I so, you know, we're not going to let USAG say that, right? We're not going to let USOC say it's solved. Nasser's in prison and the Corollis retired. That, that's not the case. And we're certainly seeing that with the women around the world speaking. We're seeing a deep-seated cultural issue. But I think, you know, we do touch on the issue in the film. I think that there is, and, and we, we shot more on it. And at the end of the day, you kind of have a length that people will watch. And, you know, we don't, mm-hmm. we, we didn't think people would watch a four hour movie probably. Yeah. But, um, you know, we believed in America that we were winners, but we won the right way. And it was the love of sports and we respected the athlete. And I think what we see here is, you know, that's what's upsetting to the, the casual viewer of sport when they watch this is, you know, we would have, those were the stories we told in those puff pieces in the Olympics, you know, beforehand about each of the athletes. And it's not true. We were abusing these kids. We were sending them to the ranch and starving them and not letting them talk to their parents and sexually assaulting them. So we, mm-hmm. we didn't win the right way, but that couldn't have happened if we weren't open to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, and I, I, again, I don't really think that, they brought necessarily, you know, they had to drop some of what they were able to get away with in Romania, like literally, literally like slapping the kids, which we talk about yeah. in the film, which they, they couldn't really get away with that here. But, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately, I think the Corollis are very American. They're an American success story. You know, the big personality, you know, they monetized that with advertising deals and NBC speaking engagements and you know, they created or he did this persona around this crazy Romanian <laughs> coach, you know? So I don't know. I think he's ultimately incredibly American. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, obviously like your experiences, which you highlight in, in the documentary, like speak to this longer history, right? Like your lived experience is direct evidence that this foundation existed before they got there, um, which is, which is incredibly compelling and, and, you know, really speaks to this sort of broader, broader history here. Um, now, you know, I, it's been really, and I'm sure you feel this way probably much more so than me, but it's been really something to sort of see like every, it was sort of like one a week, but it seems like now, like almost every day there have been new, uh, there have been more and more gymnasts all over the world, mainly in Western Europe, but in other places too, that have started to come out and say, like, we were, like, we basically, like, we have been encouraged by athlete A, and now we feel comfortable to say X, Y, and Z happened to me, and this is really terrible. And, you know, I was sort of wondering, you know, knowing what you do about sort of the snail-like pace at which sport policies are changed, what hope do you have for the future that, like, 
because of athlete A, because of these women speaking out all over the place, that governing sport bodies such as uh, the FIG and coaches might actually listen to women's voices, implement the changes that are needed. Well, I think some of the um, country level federations or governing bodies are listening. I mean, Mm -hmm. British Gymnastics responded. They're doing an independent investigation. Australia Gymnastics responded. I think they're doing listening sessions across the country. You know, they're not waiting for every single child to report abuse. They're going to go out into the field and listen. Um, You know, I, I think one of the federations was it the Netherlands tried to um, kind of get the athletes, you know, on the national team to post really positive statements. I might be getting the country wrong. Um, And they met, they were met with such ridicule that all the athletes took them down and admitted that they were forced to do it. And now elite gymnastics, the program is on hold there um, while they conduct an investigation. And so you know, the governing bodies are responding quickly. I think the collective clamor of women's voices just got too big. And I, and I think eventually there will be pressure on FIG. It's marked, though, that the USAG has not responded at all. So USA Gymnastics has not <laughs> responded in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's telling too, right? Like, as you said, one of the reasons why Athlete A, like people are home and are able to watch it. And like you said, these female gymnasts are home and their bodies are recovering. So like, yeah. you know, you also wonder how much is that helping them realize, wow, this is what my life, my yeah. body could be like, which, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, you can't underestimate time to contemplate, you know, and to mm-hmm. sit and to think and to sort of watch this film and hear athletes speak and have the time to sit with that and realize that it resonates with you and that it's similar to your experience and to not be sort of forced back into the gym the next day and kind of sweep it all under the rug is, is meaningful. This is our last question. And then I thank you again for taking the time to chat with us. Um, and you can um, go back to your family. We're really appreciative for the time. But a couple, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Geza Pojar um, as part of our kind of gymnastics week. And one valid critique that we received was that we never asked him about why he was willing to stay with the Corollis for so long in the U.S. when he knew about their abuse. And this like certainly raises an issue of complicity um, in, in gymnastics culture in general for a lot of coaches. Why might gymnastics coaches in general have sort of been willing to turn a blind eye and continue with working with these abusive coaches and an abusive coaching system? Sort of what other options did they have? Well, they're all part of that system. They've bought into it too. They're not so much turning a blind eye as having bought in and not thinking it's problematic. Now, um, you know, I believe that most of these coaches who are, I mean, there's some coach, I think a Dutch coach who, or is it Belgian, who's admitted and he's deeply ashamed that he treated the athletes this way. Um, you know, he admits it and he didn't recognize it at the time. And now he feels a deep, deep sense of shame. Now others continue defending the actions. But I think, you know, I, I won't say that I, I don't, I mean, Gaze is in our film. I, do, I don't know him personally. Um, you know, look, he came from that same system in Romania. It all probably Mm -hmm. seemed very normal to him. And I 
welcome the fact that now he can look at it from the outside and say, this is problematic. We have to accept people who, you know, see the error of their ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to welcome them um, to, you know, this side of the fence, you know, and the group that wants to see a safer environment for athletes. I, I don't hold that against him. He was part of the same system. Um, I'm more offended by people that continue to defend it, even when it's been pointed out to them and when they have the opportunity to reform. I'm more offended by that. Now, I do think it's also a different moment in time, and it's much easier now to say, yeah, that is abusive. (laughs) You know, it's much harder when you go it alone and you're one of the first, you know, one of the only coaches or one of the other only athletes or one of the only former athletes. You know, look, I don't. Uh, there are a lot of people now who act like they supported me 12 years ago. And I can tell you they did not. You know, it's easier to sort of take the side of the kind of collective that has momentum um, yeah. than to take the side of the one athlete or the, uh, you know, so it's hard to stand apart. That's hard. Um, so I don't, I don't fault him for that. And I don't fault him for coming over here and trying to help make it better. I think it's great. Yeah. And just sort of for the record, you know, like we definitely, I mean, we had a great conversation with him. Um, and, and like, you know, he started speaking out, I think it was in 2008. So it must've been right around when your book yeah. came out, um, sort of d- defending and corroborating that the Carolis had abused, um, Trudy Kolar or uh, Amelia yeah. Everly. Um, so, you know, it, again, like he was not like a recent bandwagoner, right? Yeah. Like he, he had been doing this yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with your point there. But I mean, I, I look, I trained in the environment. I didn't say anything either. You know, it's it's yeah. when it's yeah. sort of, that's the whole point about it being a cult and being it normal, be, having it be normalized is you do accept it. And if you can mm-hmm. sort of step outside of it and get an external view um, and get some objectivity and say, this is broken and it's problematic and I participated in it, but I don't think it should be this way anymore, then that's great. Well, Jennifer, this has been such a delightful conversation. Thank you so very much. Uh, We know that you're very busy. Um, We know that your family is waiting for you, but we truly appreciate you sitting down and just sharing us, sharing all these uh, wonderful insights with us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.